The first lesson I learned really was that leadership does not develop in the presence of good leadership mm-hmm. because they will always defer to you and you, you're making the decisions. They're not making the decisions. But once I, I moved out of India, they had to make the decisions. Welcome to the CDM Podcast, a production of Contagious Disciple Making. We exist to catalyze movement through coaching, community, and communication. We created this podcast to help everyday Christians become world-changing disciple-makers. Welcome to the CDM Podcast. I'm Rebecca Ewing. Like, share, five-star, rate, and review this podcast for us to be able to have a greater ability to share this podcast and trumpet out to this message to all those around about how to make disciples, uh, even in a COVID lockdown world. And today we have David Watson once again with us, and he's going to be talking to us about the time in which uh, he and the and his seeking movement in India was put out of the country, and how he and God worked through those situations and the the benefits and any tips. <laughs> that he has in regarding that situation. So thank you so much for joining us, David. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, the, the thing most people don't realize is that uh, circumstances change all the time, and we have to deal with those changes as they come through. Mm-hmm. And the, the main thing for me was I was very much trained to be an incarnational missionary, meaning that I would live, learn language, live in the culture. My primary focus was the culture. My friends were from the culture. I didn't spend a lot of a lot of time with other people as far as other missionaries. My time was spent with with local people. So we moved to India in 1989, was able to we were able to get a visa by the hand of God. We got a visa we didn't expect, which allowed us to live in India, even though our ministry was designed to supposed to be remote from India at that point in time. But uh, in 1989, we moved to India. But in 1991, the Gulf War broke out, and as a part of the protest by India against the Gulf War, they selected 50 American families to expel from India, and they were called non-essential. Well, I was one of the non-essential workers in India that that got expelled. So I had really only a a little, literally less than a month uh, with my team before I was expelled. I'd been building the team for about a year, year and a half. And then we were just getting jailed, and I get expelled from the country. Mm-hmm. And, and to put that in perspective, uh, there basically was no email then. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very few people. I had the only personal email account in India, the only one. And and it was and it was constantly monitored by by everybody. I think who wanted to know what the American was saying. Uh, the primary mode of communication was news uh, was basically letters. We wrote lots of letters. I, I'd receive over three or 400 letters a month from, from people around the world, from prayer partners. But then when I moved out of India, I had to start receiving letters from the people I, I was working with in India. Yeah. And most of them were functionally illiterate, meaning they could read and write, but they functioned as if they did not read or write. So if it weren't an oral communication, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And that led to Lots of time lags on decisions being made, lots of problems uh, with decision-making. But one of the first lessons we learned very quickly was that as long as I was in the country, everybody deferred to me for their 
opinion, for their, for what they were going to say to other people, for what they were going to do, to the point that at times I felt like they couldn't open a bag of cookies without asking me permission to do so. But that all changed fairly quickly after I was out of the picture in the country. Now I was an advisor and a leader, but not a performer. Mm. And and that changed everything because before I was a performer, I was making decisions. I was training people how to implement. It was the all decisions. centered in around you. Yeah, it was all centered around me and my focus and where I was headed. And they had to make a choice. Did they see this as something they were going to do, or was it just something they were they were humoring David Watson to try to do, and knowing that in their own mind it wouldn't wouldn't work. They had to decide whether. That. They had to decide whether or not to to adopt this for their own, to make this their own. Yeah, because it had never been done before. Mm-hmm. The way we started out with the Discovery Bible studies and 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 moving moving from there into how do we enter villages, how do we enter hostile villages, how do we enter open villages, who to report to, who do we partner with at at, at the at the biggest point in, in the work in India, we had 147 active partners. Mm-hmm. And that was both ministries inside India and ministries from outside India, and, and that was a that was a lot of relationships that had. That to be is a lot of relationships, <laughs> and and dealt with. So what I what I, the first lesson I learned really was that leadership does not develop in the presence of good leadership, mm-hmm. because they will always defer to you, and you you're making the decisions; they're not making the decisions. But once I, I moved out of India, I was only seeing them three, four times a year for maybe a month at a time. But they had to make the decisions. Mm-hmm. And guys that I didn't know were leaders all of a sudden were stepping up the plate and becoming leaders because now they couldn't ask me what color to, should the sign be painted. <laughs> you know, it was it was paint the sign. Don't worry about it. <laughs> You're the decision maker, you know, how big is the sign that you're the decision maker? Well, what kind of background? You're the decision maker. <laughs> and it just kept pushing all those decisions uh, down to, to the, to the bottom or the top from my perspective of the pile. And they, they would say, uh, well, what if it goes wrong? I said, then you'll fix it. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, cause it, cause I don't think the people always are conscious about how, I don't know the word dangerous, but you know how how crucial it is when you're trying to multiply, when you're trying to develop the leadership, to not have them constantly so dependent upon you as your personality, as your decision making, because that is that is a human response. If we can just let somebody else do our own thinking and and rely on somebody else's force of their personality and stuff to get things done, that's what we naturally will do. And so, as you had said earlier, that leadership is often developed in a vacuum where it sense that, hey, someone needs to stand up and do this. There's no one else that I can depend upon, so therefore I must be able to stand up and do this. And that and how important that is for the development of the people. So, which really goes against what our current ministry um, inclinations go. We're saying, we need to be there. We need to be on the ground. We need to be, you know, helping them directly and um, always be centered around us and what we're doing. So, but the thing, the reality is, is very quickly, we need for them 
it to be centered around them and the people they're trying to disciple to help them become those um, independent leaders? Well, it's actually more insidious than that. Uh, when we're not on the ground and we we're away from it, we want more data. As, as the primary responsible person, we start thinking more data. And before long, I had an inflated data request of 50 separate items on a report. Because I, I, you know, I thrive on knowing what's going on on the data. And I started looking at ministries as a whole, and, and some ministries had 100 data points they're collecting. And, and what was happening was that the, my desire for data was actually crippling the ministry because now they were worried about data keeping more than about, about seeing people come to Christ. Mm-hmm. So we had to start looking at, okay, how do we stream down this data, this data stream that I get what I need, not what I want, what I need, mm-hmm. and lighten the burden on the people who are at the field level doing all the work and then trying to fill out 10 hours of paperwork every month. Mm-hmm. And so we, we came down basically to one metric, and that's replication. Are the disciples replicating? Are the disciple makers replicating? Are the, are the groups replicating the discovery? Groups replicating? Are the ministries replicating? Are we going across boundary lines to move ministry into places where there's a lot of resistance, whether it's Muslims or Hindus? And through that process, when people, I'd ask one question, tell me, tell me who you're mentoring. Mm-hmm. And they would say who they're mentoring. And then I'd say, who are your mentees mentoring? Mm-hmm. And then who are your mentees mentees mentoring? They can't answer the, the, that question. You can answer two levels down. That's as far as you go. The third one is a guess. Mm-hmm. And say, then at their field, they could answer two levels down, but the third one was a guess. So we began to realize that our accuracy in data was about three total generations. Mm-hmm. And that we had to have someone then to collect this data and this data and put it together in a report so we see the bigger picture. And that's when we started looking for full-time persons to actually be data collectors that would go out and interview people and get that first, second, third generation, then go to their third generation, get one, two, three more generations, then go to you just skip those things. You know, they, that, they, they, you know, they say that, you know, for hashtag first world problems, you know, these are not the normal problems of ministry where you're having to go, because we usually don't see multiplication down to that generation when it comes to normal ministry. And so now we realize that there are a whole new set of considerations once we actually do multiply that far down. And maybe that's part of the reason why where a lot of even ones that seek replication don't get beyond the second generation when it comes to those things. Your, your metrics will determine how far you go. I was invited to uh, help a major denomination determine why they couldn't get to DMM. And where I started was, was their metrics. And they had a data collection page that went to the field that had 50 points on it, 50 things they were collecting. The first point was, how much literature have you sold this year? Mm. The last point was, how many people have you baptized this year? Mm. Well, when people look at a metrics list, they prioritize it based on the number that's beside each unit. Mm -hmm. So for them, baptisms was the least important thing they had to report. Mm 
and therefore the least important thing they had to do. Yeah. Subtle things like that really change things. And I, and I wrote them, I wrote them back. I said, all I want you to do is just take number one and make it number 50 and take number 50 and make it number one. Mm-hmm. And the next year they hit all their, all their growth goals just by changing the, the, the number. I couldn't talk them to get rid of any data points. So I just said, make number one, number 50, and make number 50, number well, one. Well, isn't that what Jesus also said? He said, you seek the kingdom and then all these things will be added unto you. So, I mean, hey, you just made the number one thing, the number one thing. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's so, that's what I said. Replication is, is our primary metric. Mm-hmm. Go and make disciples is a replication command. Yes. That's what it is. And teach them to obey everything I've taught you. That's a replication command. So if they're obeying, if you teach them to obey everything you're obeying, then it moves out a generation. Mm-hmm. And as it moves to the next generation, they're doing the same thing. They're teaching them to obey. And and again, they're making disciples, that that whole process that and it replicates. And we can see 15 generations now, sometimes in less than two years. Mm-hmm. And so we say, well, that's really, really fast. No, no, it's not really, really fast. We still spend two to four years with every new church right. or every new leader, but it starts replicating exponentially. So instead of one, 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 you get one, two, four, 12, 300. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's that kind of, it's that kind of replication. And you still have to spend all the time with every new leader, equipping them to the level of being able to train and reproduce pastors and train and reproduce local regional leaders. So when you were uh, working with the people in, in India, when you couldn't be there <laughs> in person and everything, uh, when when you did, I know, know that you had mentioned that, ever, that you would PR, periodically come in person to be able to see how things are going. What were your priorities when we were there? I mean, I know that people generally, when they go on mission trips, they try to do big medical uh, help or they try to have a big service or they try to have a lot of, you know, they have their own agenda when they go. What was your focus when you came in and were in person? My focus was was being a friend and a, a confidant and a leader to the men and women who were at the top leadership levels. And then I'd usually reach down one one level past them and, and do equipping and training. So I'd go usually for for three to four weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. And then I would set up base in the Bojpuri districts. And then instead of me running all over the place, uh, I just had a constant stream of people coming through for one-day training events, two-day training events, and we'd put them up in hotels near us. We we I usually would rent two hotel rooms. I would stay in one, then the other one was for meetings where we could serve, you know, uh, tea and 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 biscuits. Uh, I mean, cookies. Uh, so the, that bag of cookies they opened up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and. People look at me and say, wait a minute, you're spending a lot of money on hotels and, and travel. And I said, yeah, but I'm not spending it on me and my travel. It's on other people mm-hmm. to get them to a place where they could sit down and be disassociated with the day-to-day they were in so they could pay attention on the equipping and training that we want them to receive. And that's that's the single largest problem that I learned to 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 avoid was if you go to a place where people are ministering and try to train there, it's not going to happen. 
because they the the day to day of running their ministries just shuts it down. Mm-hmm. So again, if you want people to focus, you have to move them from their environment they're working in to a learning environment. Mm-hmm. And it's in that learning environment that you then begin to see people learn more quickly. And you could even practice, you could have a practice environment with a learning environment. And, and they're not doing it where they make mistakes in their own work. They do it where they make mistakes someplace else, learn from those mistakes. And when they go back to their work, they're not making those same mistakes. So when you're there and you're helping train and be friends with the people that are there, you know, we had talked about earlier, not being someone that people depend upon for every little thing, you know, for the cookies and for the painting and all this different type of stuff. But then there's the opposite side of the spectrum, right? Where we have to make sure that they're actually discipling in a way that will replicate a discipling a way that is uh, helpful to um, in the in the principles and methods of of disciple making. So, how did you um, interact with the people to make sure they were hit, hitting the strategic things? That well, first of all, I focused on five five people four four men and a woman. They were the primary people in, in the entire ministry for um, almost ten years, and. Uh, I would equip them. They would go out and equip, and then they'd come back and report to me about the equipping and how it was going. We'd actually tweak it based on them, not based on me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we'd make we'd make changes in the training. We'd make changes in style. We'd do things like that. But trying to standardize the training as much as you can in an oral culture, mm-hmm. which is pretty actually pretty easy to do in an oral culture versus a literate culture where everybody thinks they're the editor and they can change anything they want to. And then don't realize the, the the four words they just took out just changed the meaning of everything they were doing. Mm-hmm. But as as I trained those guys, and then, and they were regional leaders, they would go out and they would train the district leaders, and the district leaders would train the, the village leaders. Mm-hmm. So it, it was an understanding that we had these levels. We had people who were mobile trainers who went around village to village because we didn't have enough personnel to stay in, in every place. But it all started with I would train trainers and the trainers would train more trainers and and practitioners but the impact of this was everybody was learning it and everybody was training it mm-hmm. and the fact that they were training it they learned it better because mm-hmm. it wasn't because they were practicing training learning and training they were doing all three and and that was we had we didn't have a leader who did not do it Mm-hmm. that they weren't leaders. If they didn't do it, they were something else. Uh, matter of fact, I never figured out what to call those people that didn't do things, except gone usually go away. <laughs> but, uh, but all of our people were practitioners, learners, and trainers. They, mm-hmm. they did all three. That is really important. There's a lot of people who want to be trainers without being practitioners. Yeah, and you cannot, you cannot establish a DNM through seminar. Mm. You're wasting your time and money on seminars from the very beginning. You you put your money into the right people, and the money you'd spend on a 100-person seminar would go a long way to training 100 people in the field mm-hmm. and have it more impact than a 100-person seminar will have. Now, there's sometimes we have to disseminate knowledge in the seminar program, but I, I do it only when I'm forced to. So if a country says, okay, you come for two weeks and you, we want you to to see as many people as possible, I say put 300 in a room, then that's as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. And I'll work the heck out of them for, for two weeks. And 
and give them enough experience in the learning environment around the training center that we could at least get them some experience before they head back and try to train it. But they weren't going back to do seminars. They were going back to support their teams. Because it's all about learning while doing in that particular yeah. regard. So and, and also recognizing that you don't learn something until you can teach it. Mm-hmm. So by getting people to teach early, they actually learn better. It's like, it's like going to Greek class and teaching Greek. I went to Greek class for three years, thought I knew Greek pretty well until I started teaching Greek. <laughs> and then also has I to be this whole new level how much I didn't know about Greek uh, until I started teaching Greek. Right. And that's, that's the process for all of us. The, when we reach the level of teaching, that's when we're really learning. So what we want to do is incorporate the teaching as a stage of the learning process. Mm-hmm. So that's the kinetic stage. That's the doing stage. Yeah. So you you have to get information, you have to obey the information, which is which is you say well that's kinetic. No, that's a decision to do something you would not normally do. Mm-hmm. So you have to make that that commitment to obey, and then you go out and do. So that's practice, and then you start teaching others, which reinforms this whole process, and and gets it to grow faster and stronger. So and you say to everyone. You have to teach at least two people what I've taught you, or I don't talk to you again for another two weeks. Well, there you go. And you're, because you're really have holding that line there and not just, you know, yeah. saying that this is a value without actually holding the accountability that that is what needs to happen. And I actually like that because it, because otherwise, again, you'll have a bunch of people that will want to either be dependent or want to not personally practice and just be able to do parts of this of this whole thing. So what I'm hearing from you is that you're saying that you developed these um, five leaders and your when you went in, your focus was basically developing of the, the leadership process. And, mm-hmm. and that was your main focus. It wasn't to draw a bunch of new people into the faith or draw more, a uh, bunch of new people into making disciples. It was focusing on the ones that you already had and helping them be able to multiply that out. Thanks for listening to the CDM podcast. To hear part two, become a supporter on our Patreon page. You can find the link in the description. For coaching or other resources, connect with us at ContagiousDiscipleMaking.com.